Please open your Bibles with me to Proverbs chapter 6, looking at verses 6 through 11 here this morning. This week, we are beginning to enter into the topic studies of the book of Proverbs. The last two weeks, looking at different intro areas, um, different intro areas and different thoughts as we go into this book. Again, like last week, the memory verse that we're focusing on for this coming week is a little bit different than the passage itself. This morning, we're going to be studying Proverbs chapter 6, verses 6 through 11. But the memory verse that we're going to be working on this week comes from Proverbs chapter 30, verse 8 and 9. And again, these are listed for you on the bookmarks, which are available in the foyer, also in the Proverbs sermon notebooks, um, which, are, which you can pick up on the way in and which Scott will pass out if... There should be more in the other place. Yeah, which Scott will pass out if we have any more of them left, um, if, you didn't get, if you didn't get one, one of those. But... All that to say, the verse for this week, Proverbs 38 through 9, Remove from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of our God. Looking here at Proverbs chapter 6, as we get into the study here this week, we are looking at a, this passage where the writer is using a negative example And the purpose of the negative example is to set up a contrast that we would positively learn wisdom from it. Last week in particular, we looked at the calling that Proverbs gives to us to seek wisdom, to pursue it, to strive for it, to to be unrelenting, to be tenacious in our search for wisdom. Well, where do we find it? Where do we actually go to gain wisdom? What we see here is that wisdom is all around us. It is woven into the very fabric of creation itself. Other thing to know as we move into this passage, which is talking about the sluggard, that this is a message that God has for you. This isn't a message for you to bludgeon the person sitting next to you with, um, nor is it a message of, oh, I really hope that this other person listens to this. No, it's, it's here for you. And so with that, look with me as at Proverbs chapter 6, verses 6 through 11. Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise, without having any chief, officer, or ruler. She prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man." Let's pray for God's blessing on his word. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would indeed send your spirit to open up the truth of your word to us, Father, that we would understand your story in redemption and the wisdom that the ant shows us in light of your story. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, to begin with, who is the sluggard? From that, it's very easy to critique the able-bodied person who is milking the system for all that the system is worth. It's easy to critique the you know, children who are perpetually mooching off of their parents and taking for granted their parents' labors and never standing on their own two feet when they should be. But not, maybe not so obvious is that the heart and the attitude of the sluggard is also expressed in many other groups of people. Take for many people who are moving towards retirement. And the goal of retirement is to have a long and leisurely and self-indulgent retirement. 
It's the dominant notion within our culture, but it's an idea that reflects the desires of the slugger, and the idea of a self-indulgent retirement is nowhere reflected in the Word of God. So, too, it reflects the attitude that many of us have for work. That really the ideal life is a life of leisure and a life of enjoyment. And the reason why we work is we work for the weekends, we work for vacation, or we work until we make enough money that we don't have to work anymore. And when we begin to see this in some of the characteristics laid out here, truthfully, there's a bit of there's a sluggard in every one of us. But what do we see here about the characteristics of the sluggard laid out here in this passage? To begin with, is that the sluggard will not begin things. Look at verse 9. Sluggard says this, or the proverb says this, How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? To these questions, the sluggard has no answer. He won't outrightly refuse and say, I'm going to lay here longer because that would take too much effort. But the motto here of the sluggard is, don't rush me. It's the person who is constantly making soft choices, who deceives himself by the endless series of little compromises. And he loses one opportunity after another, after another, after another, day by day, moment by moment, until therein lies a wasted life. The sluggard will not begin things. So too, the sluggard will not finish things. Seeing this idea expressed in the other, other passages of Proverbs, sluggards characterize this idea in Proverbs chapter 26, verse 15. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish, but it wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. That's, I just can't quite get it there. That's just, too much, that's just too much work. And so what happens is that the sluggard does not finish the things that he begins, and eventually it comes crashing down. Verse 11 describes it this way, And poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Why? Because he doesn't finish anything that he actually does begin. But quite frankly, for most people here, the idea of poverty coming upon you like an armed man, probably is not the biggest danger that we're faced with in our Christian journey. But rather, as Ray Ortland Sr. says, last week we looked at a quote from Ray Ortland Jr. describing that you, know, it doesn't, you don't just have to hate Jesus to waste your life, you only need to be okay with how you are. Well, his dad wrote a book called, Lord, Make My Life a Miracle. And on this idea, his dad writes this, Your danger and mine is not that we become criminals, but rather that we become respectable, decent, commonplace, mediocre Christians. And the 20th century temptations that really sap our spiritual power are the television, the banana cream pie, the easy chair, and the credit card. And the Christian wins or loses in those seemingly innocent little moments of life. Because the sluggard not only does not begin things, but he doesn't finish things. Third thing about the sluggard here is that the sluggard will not face things. Verse 10 describes it this way. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, just a little bit more, just a little bit more time, just wait a little bit longer for me to make a decision, just a little bit more time, a little bit more food, a little bit more rest, a little bit more less stress, just a little bit more. But the wise man will learn, the wise man knows that the sluggard is no freak, 
but as often as not is an ordinary man who has refused, who has made too many excuses, too many refusals, and too many postponements. postponements. And it has all been as imperceptible and as pleasant as falling asleep. And so by inches and minutes, his opportunities and his life slips away. The other way that the the mantra of the the life of the sluggard is expressed is the attitude of, I just need a little bit more time. I'm just going to wait and see. I'm just going to hang back. I'll critique everybody else around me. I'll critique and tell everybody else what's wrong with them. I'm not really going to stand for anything. I'll see who else will step forward. I just need a little bit more time. I just need a little bit more, little more time to see if I want to make a decision or not. Slugger doesn't begin things, he doesn't finish things, and doesn't face things. Now contrast that with this. 1914, Ernest Shackleton and his expedition towards the South Pole allegedly puts this ad in London. Men wanted for hazardous journey... Small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return, doubtful. Honor and recognition in case of success, Sir Ernest Shackleton. And with that ad, he had men lined up to go on his expedition to the South Pole. And quite frankly, we need men who will step up, who will step up for Jesus Christ Men like this who will step up and live for Jesus Christ and advance the cause of Jesus Christ. And I say men because women do this much more naturally and often better. And we need men to step up and do this because there are far more women who have stepped forward to advance the cause of Christ than men have. And we need men to step up and to do this. Our culture portrays men as lazy buffoons, morons who need to be trained by their wives, as, as, as doofuses who need to be given step-by-step instructions before they'll do anything. And many men, quite frankly, are very happy to abdicate to anybody else, to another person, to, another, to a woman, to another man. They're happy to abdicate. Why? Because it means a little more rest, a little more leisure, a little less stress in my life. Now imagine me with me what would happen in this community, let alone the world, if men of conviction and action were energized for the cause of Jesus Christ. And that's what the world needs to see from us, that we have a faith that is not only worth living for, but is a faith that is worth dying for, and men stepping forward in that regard. Women too, but there's a lack of men doing it. Now so far in everything of what I have said, what does this have to do with Jesus? In everything that I've said so far, what has been Christian, distinctively Christian about anything that I've said? The answer is not much. Actually, not much of it at all. You know, we said, well, being lazy has consequences. If you're lazy, you get a nasty label like, oh, sluggard. We've said, you know what, we don't need lazy Christians, we need motivated Christians. Well, that same message could be given almost in any sphere of life, right? We don't need lazy dads. We need motivated dads. We don't need lazy pilots. We need motivated pilots. We don't need lazy soccer players. We need motivated soccer players. I mean, substitute the context, and you could, say, put that in almost any phase of life. So what's distinctively Christian about this? When we began this series, one of the things that I identified was that this in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 1, that these are the Proverbs of Solomon— the son of David. 
that these Proverbs were written and given to the covenant community, to the people of God, to the people of God who had been recipients of God's grace in whom the Holy Spirit had been at work. Given that context, what that means is that when we come to Proverbs like this, is that we need to understand this passage and these truths in light of the covenant, in light of the story of God's grace. We need to understand what's being said here in, in the context of the picture of the grace of God and what he is doing. So let's take this proverb and do that, do that right now. What this proverb is, where the, the, how this proverb fits in the stories of God's grace is this, is that you and me, is that we were created in the image of God. We are created in the image of God whose work can be seen in creation and sustaining it every day. We see a God who, by his work, sent the stars into place, separated the mountains and the oceans. A God who was creative and designing from great things to small things. And you and we are created in the image of God. What that means is that our lives were created to have purpose. Our lives were created to have meaning and significance, to be worthwhile, to wake up and to have joy and purpose in what we are doing. Why? Because we are created in the image of God, and after being created in God's image, God looked at mankind and he gave them a command. He gave them a mandate. Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. And in that mandate that God gave to mankind, he said, cultivate the earth, rule it, subdue it, develop the created order. Let it prosper, let it mature, let it be cultivated. And he created us in God's image to cultivate God's good creation. But mankind as a whole perverted the created order. We turned it upside down. Instead of being centered on God, we each centered our lives on ourselves. And so what happened is it all got turned upside down. Instead of having lives with purpose and meaning in the things that we're doing, we feel emptiness and boredom. This gnawing discontentment. Maybe a feeling that, you know what, there's nothing that really makes me happy. And I look at life and it just seems all futile. And so I, you know, I, I study hard and I work hard and I, and I go to school. And I study hard in school and I come out and I get a good job. And I say, uh, okay, is this it? And then I get that job and I'm like, you know what, there's still something married. Maybe I should get, I need, I need to get married. That'll do it. And then you get married And you wake up one day and you say, is this it? And it still doesn't satisfy. And then as that goes on, you're like, you know what? We need kids. That's what it is. We need kids. And so you have kids and your kids are going along. And in the midst of the craziness of kids, maybe your kids are, and you say, really? Is that, was that it? Is, is, that, is that what this is all about? That there is this continued sense of, you look around, I've got a, maybe I've got a good job, I've got a good family, life is going well for me, but why is there this gnawing sense of emptiness and boredom and this sense of meaninglessness in my life? What happened at create, in the garden after God created us and we upended the whole created order, not only did our purpose and meaning turn into meaninglessness and emptiness, but work itself, the good work that God gave to us itself, became corrupted and became cursed. It was still good, but though still good, it is now corrupted and cursed. So that means the good work that God has given for us has become harder, become frustrating, has become subject to cycles of death and decay. So you work on something and you develop it, and it, like, disintegrates. 
and things get worse, and there's problems, and there's challenges, and it doesn't go the way that you intended. And our work itself is, is cursed and corrupted and subject to decay. So let's add these things together. So if we look at the equation of work as this. Work equals meaninglessness plus corruption. And that's the experience of many people. Well, how do they deal with that? Well, some seek to deal with the meaninglessness and the frustration of their work by becoming workaholics. Is that they find some aspect, something of worth that they want to devote themselves to or that they're good at, and that begins to rule their life. And so the way that they deal with the meaninglessness is they say, I'm going to find something in this and I'm going to pour myself into it. And what will give me meaning is by being more successful, gaining more money, more power, being better than the other person, being more of a winner than the other people around me. Look back at life and at the end of it and say, really? Is that it? And for some, even though who go down the workaholic tendency, what gets expressed, they say, you know what? Yeah, I'm doing this, but the reason why I'm doing this is I'm going to work until I don't have to work anymore, and then I can go to that long life of leisurely retirement. But for other people, the corruption of work is distorted in the other direction. It's not workaholism, but it's into sluggardliness. That sees work is just a curse. It's work. That the ideal life is a life of leisure. And so what's really going to satisfy me is if I have more leisure, more experiences, more comfort, more stuff, more party, less stress, more good times, less work. And maybe eventually I'll get to the point where I can do that for the rest of my life. And at the end of both of them, the the emptiness and the meaninglessness continues to grow and continues to move on. But God sent Jesus Christ into this world became man in the person of Jesus Christ to redeem and to renew not just God's people, but God's good creation. In a couple weeks, we are going to start singing Christmas carols. I know it's not Halloween yet, it's not even Thanksgiving, but, but in a couple weeks, we are going to start singing Christmas carols. And one of those things that you'll see on signs all around, Joy to the World song, and one of the lines in Joy to the World is this, He comes to make His blessings known, as far as the curse is found. Well, how far is that curse found? Well, it's certainly found in our work. It's certainly found in, what, in the work that God has for us, in the lives that we have. But God has sent Jesus Christ to make his blessings known as far as the curse is found. And yes, that extends to your work. And Colossians 1, 19 and 20 makes that explicitly clear. Where it says, for in Jesus Christ... That God was reconciling all things to himself, whether on heaven or on earth, through his blood shed on the cross. It says God is reconciling all things. Well, does he really mean all things? Well, yes, because he says in heaven or on earth, reconciling all things to himself through his blood shed on the cross, including what you do for the rest of your time when you're not here in this room. You see, what happens is that when you turn and trust in Jesus Christ— For those of you who have already done so, for those of you who have yet to do so, when you turn and trust in Jesus Christ, you are justified, to use a theological term. That is, you are declared innocent, that the wrongs that you have done, the sins that you have committed, that Jesus on the cross pays the penalty for your sins and for my sins. He takes the punishment that you deserve and that I deserve, that my guilt and our shame is nailed to the cross, and we are justified, we are declared innocent through the blood of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. But it's not just that. Because not only are you justified, but you have become indwelt. God sends his spirit to dwell inside of you. 
and that you, who are created in the image of God, who have been corrupted by the sinfulness of this world in your own flesh, you're becoming renewed in the image of Jesus Christ. And as you are being renewed in the image of Jesus Christ, you are united into God's worldwide cosmic mission of renewing and redeeming the entire created order. So what does that mean for the rest of the week for you? It means that your life matters. It means that your work is integral into what God is doing in this world. And for some of you, the way your work shows God's glory is that you are continuing to participate in the creation and cultivation of civilization. You are participating in the cultivation of culture itself, advancing humankind forward. There are others of you who the way that your work shows the glory of God is that you are engaged in work that restores the brokenness of this life and brokenness of this world. Now, what happens then is that your life through Jesus Christ is now given a new purpose. A new purpose that is seen in what you do, either cultivating or redeeming. A new life in the work that you do the new purpose is seen in what you do. It's seen in how you do it. The character with which you do it and the motivation for which you do it. And it's seen in who you do it with. Is that are you redeeming the relationships of the people that you're connected with and letting them know the hope that comes through Jesus Christ, both in what you do and how you do it and who you do it with? That's the big picture. And in that big picture, this Proverbs fits. So, what is the con- with this context, what is the wisdom of this proverb? Well, verse, verse 6 tells us this. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. So in light of God's grace, here is the wisdom of the ant. First off is the motivation of the ant. Verse 7. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler is that the ant has no boss, no commander. The ant never gets a fitness report, never has a performance review, never has to submit annual goals. Is that the ant has within her all she needs to make the most of her life. That the ant has a motivation as being as as a created being, as a created being that God has created and made with a God-given purpose and with a God-given life that is to be lived. And so too for you and for me is that you are created in the image of God and those that are trusting in Jesus Christ are being renewed in the image of Jesus Christ to participate in his cosmic reconciliation, to participate in God's work of redeeming and renewing the entire created order. What greater motivation could there be? Secondly, the wisdom of the end is in motivation, and secondly, it's in its diligence. Verse 8, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. That the ant works under the hot sun, hot scorching sun, doing its job until the job is done. While you and I are lounging at the summer picnic, the ant is there carrying off my sandwich crumb by crumb. And once my sandwich is taken away, it comes back for the Doritos and the potato salad. Is that the ant is not above hard work and indeed seems to love it. But you see the diligence of the ant is that the ant is that God provides food for the ant. 
But the ant, through diligent labor, God provides the food, but the ant needs to diligently harvest it in the right time and also in the right way. So too, God provides for his people. Well, how does God provide for us? Well, it's not by kicking back and telling us to open our mouths so a piece of fried chicken can fly in. Like the way that God provides for us, most typically, is usually by providing work. And so the diligence that we see here is that God, is that we see the wisdom of the ant and the motivation. We have a God-given purpose. We see the diligence in that we have a God-given opportunity. And it's recognition that this opportunity is God-given. It is a profession that God is my provider, that he is my hope, that he is my security. And that the reason why God has blessed me with this opportunity is so that we, like the ant, would be diligent. And to clarify, of course, diligence is not sluggardliness, as we saw. But diligence also is not workaholism. Because the unbelief of workaholism says this, I am my provider. I am my security. The future depends upon me. I'm the one that's in control here. So, too, the attitude of the workaholic eventually devolves to, I'm going to work hard so that eventually I don't have to. But rather, diligence is working as well as we can, trusting God to bless our efforts and the calling that he's given to us. Diligence is applying yourself when you're supposed to be working with a God-given opportunity to fulfill your God-given purpose, but diligence also has the wisdom to stop working and rest when you're supposed to stop working. You see, God himself shows this pattern in creation. God, the most diligent being that ever existed, shows us this pattern in creation itself. And what was the pattern? Day one, what did God do? He worked and he rested. Day two, what did he do? He worked and he rested. Day three, he worked and he rested. Day four, he worked and he rested. Day five, he worked and he rested. Day six, he worked and he rested. Day seven, he rested. He was diligent in the areas where he needed to be diligent and it was time to stop, he stopped. And so too, God has given us a day of Sabbath rest, a day when we would be set free from the the pressures of this world where we would pause our worldly cares and advocations and focus on the Lord and find our rest and renewal and our purpose and our motivation in Him. The wisdom of the ant teaches us motivation. It teaches us diligence. Thirdly, it teaches us preparation. Verse 8. She prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. That the ant works today for tomorrow, that the ant prepares for the next season of life. The ant labors under the scorching sun because winter is coming. To switch up metaphors a little bit, last weekend I completed my first endurance event. I did a, a metric century bike race, and my spandex clad companion and I. Um, <laughs> I, I know. I wish I could put a picture of that, you know, just to help you with it. Um, we crushed our goals, rock on. But not only that, but as we were beginning to train for our a train for our race, one of the things that happened in our training is that as we started going and we started hitting hills and started climbing hills, when we got to the top of the hills, being completely spent and exhausted. We start to go on a downhill. Our response would be, you know what? Let's just coast a little bit. Let's just catch our breath. Let's just 
just back off a little bit. But we soon learned very quickly that on the downhills, those are the times not when we needed to back off, but those are the times when we really needed to hit it. Those are the times when we really needed to grind in and cycle hard because there's an uphill coming. And most of the downhills, you go flying on the downhill and you're about to hit a bigger uphill in front of you. And so, too, what happens for us in the course of life is that for you and for each one of us, the reality is, is that there is a strenuous climb in your future. To, put, to, to switch metaphors, there is a winter storm that is coming your way. I don't know when it'll be. I don't know what it'll be, and I don't wish it for you. And nor do I hope it for you. You don't have to go looking for it. It will come. But the question for you today is that if you are coasting on a downhill, the question is, are you preparing today for tomorrow? Are you preparing today in a season of blessing for the future? Now, that has obvious implications, financial implications of working, saving, investment, of our health, and what have you, and our children, obvious implications. But it also has obvious spiritual implications, which is in this season of life, are you coasting? Or are you using this opportunity to seek the harvest of wisdom today to prepare yourself for tomorrow? More specifically, one year from today, are you going to be a more fruitful man of God than you are today? In a year, are you going to be a more fruitful woman of God than you are today? Well, how is that going to happen? How are you reaping the harvest today How are you seeking and striving for wisdom today in preparation for tomorrow? In preparation for the coming winter blast? You see the wisdom of the ant here? You tie these things together in the story of God's creation and his redemption. And the wisdom is this, is that your life isn't worthless. Your work is not meaningless is that God created you with a purpose and he redeemed you to participate in his worldwide cosmic reconciliation. And maybe until today, and maybe throughout your life until today, for you, you viewed work as nothing more but a grind. That work was simply a means to an end for you to make money until you got to the point when you don't have to work anymore. But you see, through Jesus Christ, the wisdom of the ant shows us a new and compelling motivation, a new and compelling motivation to be diligent today and to be prepared for tomorrow. What does that mean? Well, oh sluggards, it's may the ant make us wise. Let's pray for God to do that. Heavenly Father, we ask indeed that you would make us wise. Father, that your grace and the story of your redemption in our lives would turn us from lives of self-centeredness to life centered upon you. And that would give us a new motivation to to be diligent today and to be prepared for tomorrow. Lord, we ask that you would be honored and glorified and use our lives, use our work for the advancement of your gospel to the ends of this earth. Lord, that you would be so pleased to use the labors of our hands that you might be honored and magnified, not just when we're singing a praise song, but in the very work that we do from the time we leave here until we come back here next week. Lord, would you do this for the honor of your name, we pray. Amen.